0: Into the Universe of Technical Images, by Willem Flosser, translated by Nancy and Roth, 2011, Part 3, Chapter 15, To Decide. The foregoing discussion of the problem of freedom in the coming telematic society offers something like the following picture of this society. It is like a dialogical net through whose threads information runs from knot to knot, broadly resembling a nervous system and specifically resembling a brain. The knots of this net are human and artificial intelligences, where the information accumulates to be stored, computed into new information, and finally sent on toward other knots. The sum of the information available in the net increases steadily. Therefore, the net must be regarded as an unnatural system. For in nature, viewed as a system, the sum of available information steadily decreases. In the previous chapter, this unnatural character of the telematic net was seen as an expression of human freedom. Freedom was understood there as a decision to oppose natural entropy. In other words, Telematic society was seen as a technology derived from the human will to free itself from the second law of thermodynamics, from decay, from oblivion, from death. Furthermore, it was seen as the last of all such technologies and as the first with a chance of achieving its goal. To the extent they represent human rather than artificial memories, the knots in the telematic net are known in ordinary language as the I. In more or less isolated, pretelematic memory, in the individual brain, the stored information is subject to random loss, exactly as it is in atoms, in molecules, and in organisms. The human brain is a natural organ, just as an amoeba is a natural phenomenon, and like an amoeba, it must conform to a natural tendency toward entropy. So, that which is called the I in ordinary language inevitably forgets and is forgotten if it is not part of a dialogical net. It is true that new information can occur in memory, in the I, just as it does in molecules or in an amoeba, but these negatively entropic accidents are in turn forgotten. It is true that there is a difference between molecules and amoebae, on one hand, and human memory, on the other. Human memory happens to be constructed in such a way as to strive against forgetting and being forgotten. That I, the human being, happens to be a free being. And this, its freedom, is the source of all technologies and, finally, of telematics. Telematic society is the first to be conscious of the intention of all technologies. In contrast to all previous forms of dialogue, It methodically seeks to increase the sum of available information. In all dialogue, we are concerned with technologies aimed at increasing the sum of information in the interpersonal web rather than allowing it to decrease as it would naturally. But telematics is the first to make a method out of this intention to generate the improbable. The crucial question pertaining to all dialogue, Why does dialogue produce mainly informative situations rather than mainly situations that lose information, as is the case in nature? Presents itself to telematics with particular urgency. It should be formulated as follows How does telematic technology systematically lose all redundant information and retain only the informative? That is, how does it filter the stream of information passing along its pathways? This question presumes another, how does telematic technology distinguish between redundancy and information, how does it decide in favour of information, and what criteria does it use as a filter? These criteria, this filter, this decision are the roots of freedom. For the design and construction of this unnatural filter, these criteria, are the gestures of a decision not to forget, not to be forgotten. And not to die. The question leads us to the set of variations of chance events, namely, accidents, coincidences, mishaps, and occurrences. All dialogues set up filters that rule out unfortunate accidents and mishaps, allowing only lucky coincidences, when falls into the net. Obviously, all these variations of accident are value-laden, in saying criterion, we mean values. But for now my plan is to lift the question of the filter, of the decision, out of the context of values, to proceed as though the filters did not entail ethical and aesthetic decisions. If two containers have a channel between them, and hot water goes into one container, cold water into the other, after a certain time, there will be lukewarm water in both. That is natural and illustrates the second law of thermodynamics. If the channel is fitted with a filter that allows only the cold molecules from the hot water and the hot molecules from the cold water to pass through, after a time, there will be even hotter water on one side and even colder water on the other. Such a filter can be called, Maxwell's devil and one can say of this filter that it establishes a dialogue between the two containers that leads to an improbable situation, to information. Seen in this way, this unnatural connection illustrates human dialogue as such, and telematic dialogue in particular. Maxwell's devil is a mechanism, and an automatic mechanism at that. Not only does it filter automatically, it also decides automatically which molecules will be allowed to pass. And it arrives at this decision on the basis of a difference between hot and cold molecules, recognized in turn automatically with the help of a thermometer. In Maxwell's devil, we therefore have before us an automatic sensor and critic. Of course, this automatic critic has to have been programmed by Maxwell beforehand he has to have been instructed that only hot molecules are to be admitted from the right and only cold ones from the left. This begs the question whether Maxwell was himself programmed to program his devil. At first, one gets the impression that such automatic critics and sensors could only be used for so-called value-free information, that is, only for situations in which apparatuses such as a thermometer can make decisions. When ethical, political, or aesthetic information is at issue, it seems, such apparatuses may not be used. How can such an apparatus be capable of deciding which is the best model of behavior and which film is more beautiful to allow only good and beautiful information into the dialogical net? On first impression, it seems impossible that values could be calibrated as on a thermometer. But that is an error. Informatics, on one hand, and propositional calculus, on the other, teach us otherwise. Informatics shows that the information content of a given situation is, in principle, precisely measurable, whatever type of information it may be. It is enough to transpose the equation of the second law of thermodynamics into its mirror opposite. Then the rarity of each element of the situation to be measured, the rarity of each bit of information, can be exactly determined. And these measurements can be undertaken at however many levels of a situation one wishes. For example, a German text is to be measured for its information content. In German, x is a rare letter, and the more frequently it occurs in the text to be measured, the more informative this text would become at the level of letters, and the more it occurs, the more redundant at this level. The text could also be measured at the level of words, sentences, rhythms, or styles, however, without introducing any criterion other than rarity. And of course, the same may be done with all types of information, for example, for images. One need only set up such an automatic measuring device as Maxwell's devil, and the decision as to what passes through and what does not occurs automatically. It becomes solely a question of technology. Information does in fact consist of so many levels that it is not humanly possible to single out each one and measure it, but artificial intelligences can calculate and compute faster. If technology moves in this direction, and it is doing so now, then automatic critics will not only replace but will also have deeper insights than human ones in the foreseeable future. Propositional calculus teaches that values can be calculated. Values are imperatives, should propositions. For example, respecting the life of one's neighbor implies, among other things, the imperative, Thou shalt not kill. All propositions of any sort, including imperatives, can be translated into functional propositions. Functional propositions are a type of indicative and can be formulated as if-then propositions, for example, if it is raining, I'll take an umbrella. In translating a should proposition into an if-then proposition, it becomes clear that something is missing, from, thou shalt not kill, we get, if you kill, then, of course, it is not difficult to fill in the missing part, say, if you kill, you will go to hell, or to prison, or be court-martialed or whatever. But should propositions are defective propositions and therefore meaningless. They contain about the same level of information as a dog barking. As soon as the missing functional piece is added, they become calculable. In other words, Proposition calculus shows that values are nonsense and that at the point of acquiring a meaning, they stop being qualities and become quantifiable. For example, if you kill ten times, you will go to prison for life or get a medal for bravery or whatever. Such automatic measuring devices can be fitted into Maxwellian devils, and the decision regarding which values, whether ethical or aesthetic, To permit and which to reject is then made automatically. Seen from this point of view, telematics appears to be a technology that replaces human beings not only in the creative process but also in the decision-making process. In an earlier chapter, I tried to show that even now, most decisions are made automatically, long before informatic technology and the methods of propositional calculus have reached maturity, and long before telematics has actually become functional. From this standpoint, then, telematics does not look so much like a revolution in the production of information or a revolution in preparation for this production, but rather like a revolution in decision-making, as a displacement of critical consciousness from human being to automata. The end of freedom. If this were the correct standpoint, it would be literally unbearable as critics, as beings who decide, we would be deposed. Fortunately, there is a flaw in the position described earlier, however accurately it diagnoses current tendencies. This flaw lies at that point where it seems there must be a Maxwell to program the devil. By this I am not referring to the banal, and incorrect, conception of a human programmer necessarily standing behind any program, rather I mean that there is not only a program decision but also a decision about whether to decide in a programmed way. Here we encounter the danger pointed out earlier, that the question of freedom entails a risk of falling into the void of infinite regress. I will try to avoid this. The decision to produce automatic critics is, in the first instance, a decision to clearly separate the production from the evaluation of information. For in a pretelematic context, these are combined. There the producer decides which of his insights to put into the dialogical net, publish, and which to withhold. And this decision is made not only after the information is produced but repeatedly as it is happening, as, say, a painter steps back from a painting in progress to evaluate it. This concerns a kind of schizophrenia, a split consciousness, and it can be resolved in a telematic context. For there, the gesture of producing information can be given over to apparatuses, leaving human beings free to focus on evaluation. The photographer, for example, can leave the process of making the image to the blind camera and concern himself with the construction of a filter that either accepts or rejects images made in this way. Malapohol's book Transformance one is an example. In other words, the automation of production permits everyone to become a critic. And in considering button pressing in this light, one recognizes pure criticism, a decision from which an automatic function follows. Second, the question arises where such critical evaluation, no longer concerned with production, should be located in the dialogical net. Should it be in front of the information-inducing keyboard, at the receiver's terminal, somewhere in the channel between terminals, or at all these points? This is the question that was known as internal and external criticism in the pre-telematic context, as self-censure and censure of others, and so it necessarily posed a question of freedom. In a telematic context, it becomes a technical question. What made the question so urgent in the pre-telematic context was that external criticism, the censure of others, i.e., the filters in the channels that regulated information according to criteria could never be made to coincide with those of self criticism or self censure. In a telematic context, however, the channels are reversible. When all human beings are critics, they are critics both of themselves and of all others. In fact, it is only in this dialogic critique that information arises in the first place. In short, in a telematic context, critics will be located wherever this is technically possible. And this brings us to the third question, wouldn't it be possible to automate this critique so that people wouldn't have to check all the information running in the net for its informational content? Such automata would guarantee the negatively entropic character of all dialogue. They would automatically not only eliminate everything redundant, or gossip, all kitsch, but also erase it from memory, as if such accidents and excesses had never happened, that is, these automatic critics, having been calibrated to quantitative criteria for information and logic, would turn the previous function of criticism around in such a way that instead of allowing what is informative to get through, what is allowed through would be informative, it can easily be confirmed that this reverse function of criticism is already being practiced. And people would then be free to make only the crucial decisions, those meta-judgments relating to the programming of the automatic critics. These are, I think, the three steps to the installation of Maxwell's Devil, discussed earlier, steps toward greater freedom. We now recognize that these steps lead into the void. For where all criteria are quantified and objective, there is nothing left requiring meta-decisions to be made about it. Neither counterargument nor meta-decision can reprogram a computer that has decided to steer a moon rocket on one rather than another course. And yet this does not mean that automatic critics will replace us as decision-making beings. For because all automatic critics will be bound up with one another as well as with all other human beings, all decisions will be made as a function of all other decisions. I plan to look more closely at this cybernetic mode of decision-making in the next chapter. Here I will only hypothesize that in such a cybernetic situation, human beings necessarily inherit the right of veto. For only they, and not artificial intelligences, Are capable of saying no to all of it, and not because human beings started it all, but because they transcend it all in the following sense, they are capable of abstracting, at this point in the argument, I refrain from venturing further into the void of infinite regress. In a telematic society, we will in fact be replaced, step by step, by automata as producers and critics of information, but we will maintain the right to say no. Human beings' negatively entropic opposition to nature will proceed automatically, but not necessarily with their automatic participation. All human decisions will become unnecessary in the future and will have a disturbing or dysfunctional effect when they do occur, but they will always have the potential, theoretically at every moment, to stop everything. And this command to stop, this veto right, this right to say no is the negative decision we call freedom. The negativity of basic freedom should not be demonized. It should not be identified with the Mephistophelian formula, I am the spirit that always says no to we are free because are able to say no to everything and commit suicide. It is not suicide itself that is freedom, however, but its availability as an option at any moment, not constant rejection but the constant possibility of rejecting. That is why telematics is a technology of freedom, because it frees us, step by step, of all conditions, even of having to make decisions, and so steadily broadens our view of the fundamental freedom to reject telematics itself. With this awareness, we can confidently embark on the telematic adventure. Even if we are not magistrates and censors, we will remain arbiters. Chapter 16 To Govern In the universe of technical, telematic images, there is no place for authors or authorities. Both have become superfluous through the automation of production, reproduction, distribution, and judgment. In this universe, images will govern the experience, behavior, desire, and perceptions of individuals and society, which raises the question, what does govern mean when no decisions need to be made and where administration is automatic? In a telematic society, does it still make sense to speak of government, of power and the powerful? I will attempt to answer by way of etymology, that is, by way of the roots of those languages in which a millennium of our experience is stored. One immediately confronts the curious pairing of words-government regierung. The word government is from the Greek verb kybernein, meaning to steer, and can be recognized in cybernetics. The German word regierung is from the Latin Etruscan noun rex, meaning king, and its root is the ancient argi, meaning right. At this first glance, then, government is concerned with steering, taxation, and tax collection and rejirang with jurisprudence and institutions. The opposite of government would be a rudderless ship, adrift in the wind and waves, guided by chance, and the opposite of rejirang would be lawlessness and injustice, the chaos of chance. Because both concepts are concerned in some way with opposing chance, they are regarded in dictionaries as translatable from one to the other. But in fact, Government means steering and Regierung means judgment, so expressions such as just government or left Regierung are like squared circles. Chance can be considered from two perspectives. The German word macht, power, comes from the verb mogen, to want, to wish, whose substantive form is moglichkeit, possibility. The English power comes from the Latin verb posse, meaning to be able. The French pouvoir and Portuguese Poder also come from Posse, but they are verb-substantives and would really have to be translated into German as Conan skill. German does, however, have a substantive of können, namely, Kunst, Art, so that pouvoir should be translated as Art rather than as Power. All these concepts bring us to a level of awareness where possibilities swing between probable and improbable and where art turns probabilities into improbabilities. And so Mach comes to mean the art that exploits improbable accidents to inform. The German word hirschen, to govern, comes from her, master, lord, meaning ho here, higher. This sense of superiority is better concealed in the English domination. It comes from the Latin domus, house, and means the subordination, taming, or domestication of nature through the dominus, or master of the house. The household is to be regarded as a framework with compartments, leges, laws, into which the master orders the produce. To govern then means to set up an order of priorities with the purpose of giving form to a masterless chaos, this no man's land of a world. To govern means to institute form to inform. The venture into etymology has shown, as one might have guessed, that all the concepts under consideration—government, rejirang, mocked, power, hushan, and domestication—share an underlying meaning. That is, they all refer to an engagement against the chaos of randomness, against anarchy, and for form. They all show, at their core that politics is an art, if art is taken to be a method of imposing form on what is formless. All concepts are, in essence, informatic concepts, and it appears that they will fully achieve their meaning only in a telematic society. For are technical images not precisely such an imposition of form on that which is formless? The question of what political structure will be like in a telematic society, whether there will be a government, power, now takes on a different tone. If politics is understood to be the art of informing, then the question becomes how rather than what, in a telematic society, how does governing, the exercise of power, the administration of justice occur? To go straight to the obvious answer, cybernetically. I am defining cybernetic here, Without claiming general applicability, as automatic guidance and control of complex systems to take advantage of improbable accidents and to generate information. There are signs everywhere that we are fast approaching a cybernetically governed society, that society, in fact, has already begun to change into a cybernetically governed one. There can be no doubt that the structure of the emerging society increasingly resembles that of a brain. The notion of technical images as a kind of secretion of a global nervous system, the dreaming of a superbrain, comes to mind. And these secretions, these dreams, can be grasped as the cybernetic governance of brain function. In short, the notion that arises here is that of a dreaming global brain controlled cybernetically through technical images. That would be a metaphor for the telematic society and it may not even be so metaphorical as it first appears. I now intend to enter into the domain of images from the standpoint of future telematicized people to test this domain existentially. I therefore place myself in the universe of technical images rather than at the entrance to this universe, as I have up to this point. I sit at my terminal, receive information in the form of electronic images, and I manipulate them using the keys, changing them and sending them on. I cannot, that is, see my universe by looking right or left, up or down. The picture glowing on the monitor controls me. But I have no need to look around, for anything I wish to see can be made visible to me by my terminal. If I press on certain buttons, for example, the past is made present for me, I can be present at the founding of Rome, the discovery of America, or the ovens of Auschwitz. Of course, I know that I am looking at a video disc and not the actual event, but I also know that I am seeing it in a far more concrete form than was with case with earlier history books. For if I do not accept a particular event, I need only press on several other buttons to change it. Instead of Columbus, I could have Plato discovering America for there is no more history, there is only a past accessible in memory and so available in the present. If I press on still other keys, all the models appear on the screen that explain this present past or past-present, all the myths and scientific models that have ever been conceived, from the Aristotelian to modern physics, from Democritus to Marx, from Socrates to Freud. Using the appropriate keys, I will be able to compute all these models to see to what extent they complement or contradict one another. For example, I can build a Catholic, Freudian, Marxist model and, of course, add my own elements to it. My imaginative powers allow me to play with all theories. And with the appropriate keys, I can also project everything present, whether event or theory, into the future and so make it to present. The artificial intelligence behind my terminal is programmed to calculate probability. It can displace Auschwitz into the 30th century and project forward all the models implicit in Freud. All these possibilities are available to me in the present on my screen. And I myself can, just by pressing the appropriate buttons, affect this future by adding my own bits of information for when everything has become present, there is no more future. What once was the future is now a set of possibilities for play in the present. All information is available to me in an instant. I can, with the appropriate press of a key, blend Dreams Cathedral with Lincoln Center, synthesizing new information in the process. Or I can translate the comparisons used by Jesus into pictures and coordinate them with Bach and Totter's. In short, the whole universe awaits me at my terminal as a gigantic playground. But as fascinating as such play may be, it is only peripheral to the universe I inhabit. By pressing the right button, for example, I can understand what has never been understood before and both see and understand what has never been seen before. The artificial intelligence behind my terminal is programmed to make concepts clear, for example, fractal equations or the concept of dialectical materialism. And it can analyze a performance into concepts as well, for example, a tennis match into equations of motion or a myth of the Baroro indians into logical propositions. I can have impossible phenomena explained on my screen such as the congruence between left and right hands or movement on a mobius strip. And I can play with all these things that have never existed before, with all these improbable possibilities, and in this way expand my universe. Although this creative act of making the invisible visible and the unspeakable audible thrills me, I have still not yet come to the core of my universe. For I know that behind my terminal and the threads that stream from it sits still more. I know it because when I press a given key, messages from others appear, disks in the form of pictures that are addressed to me among others. And if I like, I can myself make the image from the other Envisioner light up on the terminal, if I like, and if he likes. He can, if he likes, make this picture of mine light up on his terminal, if he likes, and if I like. We are aware of one other, and we agree dialogically. And we means, theoretically, everyone. Through this mutual recognition and acknowledgement of all others, my game with images takes on a very specific character, namely, That of a social game in which each of the changes I make to the image is at once an answer to a question that has been put to me and a challenge to all others to have further changes made and to be returned to me as a new question. In a highly responsible interaction, the main thing is not what is to be seen but from whom and to whom it is directed. I play with images not to exist in a particular way but rather to coexist all this proceeds at the speed of light. This means, on one hand, that everything appears only to instantly disappear and, on the other hand, that everything from a permanent memory rises only to sink back again, changed. The speed of light means that all time, past, present, future, coalesces at the moment it blazes up on the screen, at the point of now. But at the same time, It means that all human beings, wherever they may be, are with me for the moment and that I myself can be everywhere in the world. The speed of light makes all space, reality, possibility, impossibility, coalesce on the screen surface, at the point of here. Everything is here and now, and I can change everything here and now. And all others are here and now with me. My universe is a concrete outside time and space, a point of creative coexistence with all others. What I have tried to put into words here is both a feverishly involved and a passionate state of mind, something like a synthesis of what absorbs people in artistic and scientific creativity, in political activism, in revolutionary proclamations, in chess and roulette, in the stock market, and in libidinous dreams. It is a state of mind that does not intensify and then fall away, as in an orgasm, but that maintains itself at its orgiastic climax without interruption through a lifetime. For this state of mind is not physical but cerebral. Images are steering the telematic society in this direction toward a continuous cerebral orgasm. I admit, I am horrified now as I come away from the emerging universe. Thank God I will not experience it. But I know that this horror should be resisted. It is the archaic horror of the mammalian human being that appears at each step away from mammalian essentials and toward greater celebration. If I am able to overcome my horror, I can see what so repulsed me, namely, the pure aesthetic in the realm of images. All ethics, all ontology— all epistemology will be excluded from the pictures, and it will become meaningless to ask whether something is good or bad, real or artificial, true or false, or even what it means. The only remaining question is what I can experience, experience. And with experiences, with the purely aesthetic, the distinction between action and passion, between doing something and tolerating it, falls away, for experience is both active and passionate. Cybernetic feedback between acting and being acted on characterizes experiences, and this feedback is the way the images exert control. In modern languages, there is a sharp distinction between active and passive verb forms. I care for sheep and a sheep are cared for by me present the same situation from opposite poles, and a sheep care for me means a situation in which the elements are the reverse of what they were in the first sentence. In ancient Indo-Germanic and Semitic languages, however, there are forms, example, the Greek aorist, that might be expressed as there is a caring for myself and for sheep. I conceive of images steering the telematic society toward this method and that, in the rising consciousness, the difference between active and passive will be suspended in favor of functional propositions. A function f, x, y, can, for example, be interpreted as follows, camera and photographer are functions of photography. I suggest that the question, how will images govern in the telematic society? Permits only this answer, images and society are functions of visualization. As I said earlier, the repulsive thing about this fair formulation is that all political categories are thrown out. In the emerging functional cybernetic level of consciousness, all historical, political thinking, beginning with Judeo-Christianity to Marxism and beyond, will be abandoned as unsuited to the telematic situation. For it will offer no means of deciding between acting and being acted on, between ruler and ruled, between those who govern and those who are governed. Everything there is a function of all other functions, so governing is a conjunction of all these functions. The brain can again serve as a model, in the brain, there is a cybernetic interplay among all cells and all the processes occurring between the cells. This is the way the brain governs us and the way we govern it. To bring the situation existentially closer, I will replace the brain model with the model of an ant colony, for an ant colony can be considered a superbrain composed of single ant brains assembled like a mosaic. Because insects cannot attain the size of primates, as they grow, they must periodically shed their protective plates, and in this unshielded condition, The weight of a primate would crush them, they must form superbrains, such as ant colonies, to attain a brain size comparable to the human one. According to this model, the telematic society is a structure in which human brains follow the same cybernetic methods as ant brains. They function for one another, and function predominates. But the ant metaphor, however, fond cultural critics may be of it, has limits. For unlike the ant colony, the telematic society has no outside in which it could conceivably function. It is a global, universal society and therefore a self contained one. Images are not its external but its internal secretions. What occurs in it are pure relationships, hallucinations, dreams of a global superbrain, pure aesthetics, art replacing politics, or art taking control. All this has a cerebral character, the character of a cerebral orgasm. Just as for ants, everything is concentrated on the brain and antennae, and the rest of the body is only a kind of intestinal extension, for telematic people, everything will be focused on the brain and fingertips. And because everything is cerebral, it is characterized by an insatiable demand for new information, new adventures. Cerebral curiosity is insatiable. And the cerebral orgasm can, because it is hardly physical, never relax. This now needs to be investigated further. Chapter 17 To Shrink Telematic society is a unique sort of ant colony, an ant colony because it has a mosaic-like structure in which all functions interact cybernetically, and unique because rather than working, a telematic ant will sit in its cell and spin apparitions, technical images, pure art. There will be brains that are linked through a gym secreting superbrain to each other and to artificial brains. And yet there will be bodies attached, like anachronisms, to these brains, bodies that demand to be nourished, to reproduce, and to die, spoilsports. These bodies, these spoil sports, these pre-telematic participants in the telematic game must be pushed to the margins of view, behind the back of the player staring at the screen, because they cannot be completely eliminated. And this consideration for bodies, this regard for them, this looking back to pre-telematic conditions will make them appear continually smaller, less interesting. They will shrink. Everything physical, everything voluminous is already beginning to atrophy, and I will examine this. In the last stage of the modern era, there was a tendency to become outsized. Everything, from machines to empires, from sporting records to demands, grew into huge things. Now it is possible to recognize a reaction, a rising tendency toward the minute. It's something like a small mammal appearing to be a reaction against the giant dinosaurs. Even in late modernity, At the beginning of the century, tiny things, atoms, the quantum, calculus, became fascinating. In them, hopes rose and dangers lurked. It became clear that the concept of enormity, beyond human scale, applied not only to the very large but also to the small and that the nucleus of an atom can be more enormous than a galaxy. This reversal of attitude away from expansion and toward reduction can already be seen everywhere. Small is beautiful, or a less is more, are slogans that articulate this reversal. And if we expect the world to end, then no longer as tuba mirum spargit sonum one, but as this is the way the world ends, not with a bang but a whimper too. Everything seems to be getting smaller. Only the underdeveloped still want to grow. Presumably, to be able to shrink later. Devices, in particular, a central issue now, are becoming smaller, cheaper, and tend to shrink into invisibility and be delivered for free. The emerging telematic superbrain will be enormous because it will be a mosaic composed entirely of tiny stones. For the moment, this shrinking of volumes is rationalized by way of the past as a crisis in growth. With arguments such as, say, the exhaustion of oxygen and energy resources or protection of the environment. But it goes deeper. It is about a shift in existential interest that is already underway. Bodies are becoming steadily less interesting, and bodiless, insubstantial, immaterial information is becoming more and more interesting. And so the smaller a body is, the better it doesn't get in the way so much, it can be overlooked. A personal computer is better than a Univac, an old Beetle better than a new Audi, a shabby trailer home in Arizona better than a castle on the Loire. a fast-food lunch better than a 10-course meal. The less intrusive, the better. Everything large is intrusive and despised because it is large, large systems, in particular, including the panoramic view of future society proposed here. Telematic people, these ant-like dwarfs, will find it disgusting. From this standpoint, incidentally, one gets a new insight into the victory of images over texts. In an image, infinitely many lines press into a surface so that small images can carry more information than thick books. Images beat text because they are not so repulsive as massive rows of fat books. So this text is directed not at telematic ants but at pretelematic mammals, first because it is panoramic and second because it is a text. This contempt for size, for bodies, for one's own body has various sources. One is, as mentioned earlier, a reaction against the elephantiasis that came before. Giant monuments threaten to crush people. Another is the redundancy of great people. A third comes up for discussion here, before we examine the root of the problem, namely, a fascination with minutiae. I mean the so-called sexual revolution or gender emancipation. It basically concerns a technology of releasing the libido from reproduction, freeing sex from biology. It involves not only birth control but also the automation of reproduction by means of sperm and egg banks and incubators. Orgasm is to be the only purpose for sexual intercourse. The first and harmless result is that women are free from the curse of having to bear children. But the second is the discovery, already in progress, that the site where orgasm is produced is not the sex organs but the brain. A truly free libido is one that is not only free from reproduction but from all things physical. This leads to contempt first for the sex of others and then for one's own sex and then to contempt for one's own body, as it appeared for the first time among the hippies and now appears everywhere in curious disguises. For example, The women's movement does not stand for a just division between the two sexes but for a contempt for sexual difference, and it black is beautiful not for equality of all races but for contempt for all physical differences. In short, with a disdain for bodies, all biological criteria have lost interest. Still, our current contempt for physical size, for bodies as such, for size as such, Represents a regression, a distancing, an irony vis-à-vis all previous interests. Size and physicality have become ridiculous, unappetizing, unworthy, i.e., not worthy of interest. What is interesting now is the calculation and computation of minutiae to produce information. The vector of interest has been reversed. Such reversals can be variously observed in the past. They are rare occurrences, and they lead to a transformation in existence as well as in the world where existence is. Ortega considers it to be the emergence of a new belief, creencia, and he distinguishes clearly between the field of interest, belief, that has us, and the individual interests, ideas, opinions, knowledge, etc., that we have. I will give two examples of the reversal of the vector of interest in the past. In the second and third centuries, people began to despise those things that had previously interested them, example, the Roman Empire or Greek philosophy, and to be interested in something new. In Augustine's words, Deum Ac animum Cognoscara Cupisco. Nihileni Plus. Nihil, I want to know God and the soul. Nothing more. Nothing. What had previously been interesting had not disappeared from view. But it had shriveled and was absorbed and changed by a new field of interest. The empire became Christian, for example, and philosophy was subordinated to theology. The second example is that in the fifteenth century— people began suddenly to despise what had previously interested them, example, scholastic speculation, and to be interested in something new, namely, nature and spirit. In the words of Columbus, gratias tibi ago, domini, vidi rem novum, thank God I have seen something new. It is not that the objects of earlier interest had disappeared from view, rather they shrank and were absorbed by a new field of interest. The scholastic universals debate, for example, was reworked into scientific theories of empirical and rationalistic perception, serving discovery and invention, technology that brought nature under the control of perceptive human beings. I have given these examples to put the current reversal in the vector of interest, that which I have called elsewhere the emergence of a new level of consciousness, into perspective. The new field of interest, this concentration on the infinitely small, on calculating and computing, is beginning to have us. According to Ortega, it has become our belief. The science and technology in which we used to believe, on the other hand, will no longer have us, rather we will have it. It will not disappear but will be absorbed by this new belief. We will make use of it in the service of our new belief. It will serve the needs of calculating and computing of the images in which we now believe, that now have us. In this sense, science and technology will existentially contract, even as they will undoubtedly expand exponentially as methods. They will be absorbed by new fields of interest. We will no longer be below science and technology, in its superstition, rather science and technology will grow beneath us. From now on, superstition will be in images that will grow over us. This is how science and technology will change. They will be subordinate to the computation of images. At the beginning of the essay, I spoke of the decay of lines into particles, of processes into quanta. I spoke, in Ortega's sense, of the decay of a belief. Now our interest is beginning to focus on points, while bodies, and everything that has been abstracted from them, surfaces, lines, move toward the edge of our horizon of interest. We calculate and compute the points with the assistance of apparatuses to turn them into mosaic-like images. These images interest us. Nihileni Plus. Nihil. A new imaginative force is appearing in and around us, and from it, in turn, the universe of technical images. At the edge of this universe, this field of interest, everything from the past continues to science, technology, politics, in short, history. And many of us will continue to be interested in it for a long time. But from now on, this interest itself arises in the space of technical images, just as many remained interested in Christianity long after the Renaissance, and still today, and this interest changed completely in the space of the modern, example, the Reformation. Science, technology, politics, in short, history, will be so altered as to no longer deserve these names. They will serve the game of visionary power. I will give an example of this contraction and change of science in the new field of interest, namely, the universe of discourse in physics. Once an infinite and eternal three-dimensional structure, in which bodies flowed along in linear time from the past into the future, which was likewise endless and eternal, this universe has shrunk to a kind of ephemeral balloon that is wrinkled in the fourth dimension, with wrinkles dense with possibilities. These possibilities can be grasped as an expanding, empty body. Such a universe has nothing concrete about it. It can be calculated and computed. And not only the universe, but also the discourse can be calculated and computed. There can be no believing in it, but given a capacity to imagine, one can play with it the physical universe and the discourse of physics can be imagined as pictures on terminals. This incipient disregard for bodies, including our own, this new regard for points, including our own fingertips, this transfer of our interests from stomachs and sex organs and volumes to conceptual antennae, this is the cerebral in the emerging society. At an earlier point in this essay, I use the image of a submarine breaking through an ice cover. The new interest, and with it the universe of technical images, is rising like an icebreaker, and everything that used to be interesting is gliding like bottom fish toward the horizon of interest. And so the visionary force that is emerging can be seen as a negation of everything that used to be interesting, as an ironic disregard of that formerly held in high regard. And if saying no is a sign of freedom, then one could maintain that the rising fortunes of things cerebral frees us from physicality. Bodies denied in this way will, in fact, shrink and change but will not disappear. Human mammals will still need to be nourished, however minimally. They will also have to die, although perhaps differently from the way they do now, gradually, at an appointed time, and painlessly. They will therefore have to be reproduced as well, although perhaps also minimally. That is to say, even in the telematic society, there will have to be something like an economic infrastructure, for these bodies that cannot be completely ignored will have to have other bodies, example, nourishment, brought to them. The question of the economic structure of the emerging society is as interesting to us pre telematic mammals as it will be uninteresting for telematic people for we see it as the question of corporeal suffering and death. For this reason, I plan to bracket out the question as it appears here and deal with it more closely in the next chapter. Here I would like to look again at the rejection of bodies and resulting shrinkage from the standpoint of saying no. However human beings may define themselves in relation to other living things, whether as those that store acquired information, whether as those that oppose entropy, or whether as those that possess thought or spirit or soul, it is always as a life-form that tries to exceed its physical, organic, biological condition to become more cerebral, thinking, spiritual. It is, that is to say, a life-form that tries to neglect and devalue its own body and everything physical along with it. This rejection of everything physical, everything solid and substantial, is now at a new level. We are becoming less solid, and elements of our culture, too, are losing mass. The cult of slenderness, the nuclear family, pressure groups, terrorist cells, grills in the back garden, wind turbines instead of nuclear power plants, DIY in the tool shed could serve as examples. But it is important not to confuse this new level of rejection of things physical with the one that preceded it, namely, the Judeo Christian rejection of the sensuous. Judeo Christian culture regarded the human body as a sinful vessel from which the soul was to be released, and the world around us as a series of traps in which we are caught on our way to redemption. Judeo Christianity therefore advises us to disregard what is merely physical but we are standing at a higher level on the way to becoming cerebral. Bodies don't tempt us to become absorbed in them anymore, they bother us. We are already above them, and thanks to various disciplines, example, nuclear physics and cybernetics, we have learned that tiny bodies, purposefully manipulated, can be far more effective than giant ones. For example, a tiny quantity of enriched uranium can have a far greater effect than a million musk oxen and a small group of terrorists with access to New York's power grid can have a greater effect on the American economy than a strike by millions. We have learned that the size of bodies is not a positive function. The tiny causes can have vast effects and that when it comes to bodies, mass is not necessarily an advantage. On the contrary, if bodies, our own and those in the outside world, are to be game tokens, they are more amusing if they're small. For example, pursuits that appear to pay homage to bodies, sunbathing, nude beaches, jogging, and bodybuilding actually show contempt for them, degrading them to the level of a toy. And the smaller this toy body becomes, the less it disturbs the real game in which we are engaged, namely, a game with insubstantial information. Looking toward the far east, we could construct a pale picture of this world of rejected, contracted bodies in the land of dwarf trees, dwarf roosters, bound feet, portable kitchens, tiny ideograms, the minimal art of grey brush on transparent paper, the game of go. It is also the land of chips, miniature apparatuses, and portable tomato cultures. The rejection of size and of the body is a cultural feature of the Far East, and it is no accident that the Romans called China the land of gold-digging ants. Nor is it an accident that the telematic revolution in Japan took root so quickly. The rejection of the body found resonance not with the Judeo-Christian rejection of sensuality but rather with Confucian miniaturization. And when we talk about telematic society being global, Then we mean that it will be above all Chinese. For technical images can be regarded as a new form of ideogram, despite their formation in Western culture. With the loss of the alphabet, the West is dissolved in the East. Telematic people will reject bodies, solids, objects, things. This means all telematic people, even those who currently seem uninterested in the play with pure information, Wish to return to the physicality of organic sensations. All will feel the pull of telematicization, be drawn into its trajectory. Rejected, the objective world will blur on the horizon of telematic people. This world will become unconditional, in a sense of this word we do not yet grasp, and free in the way we say of the mind, that it goes where it will. It concerns a freedom like that brought about by drugs a freedom to ignore the objective world, the world of conditions or things, a psychedelic freedom. Technical images are psychedelic. The rejection of everything objective, tangible, physical is a rejection of all ontology, epistemology, and ethics in favor of a pure aesthetic. And this rejection is the value of the intellect. It is what Nietzsche meant when he said that art is better than truth, In the land beyond good and evil. Whether this rejection is the same as that right of veto I discussed earlier, however, is another question. Chapter 18 To Suffer The following considerations regarding the so called economic infrastructure of the emerging society rely on a social model, namely, that of Platonic Utopia, slightly adjusted. According to Plato, we are beings who have fallen from heaven topos uranicos, into the world of appearances, phenomena. At home in heaven, we saw eternal and durable ideas in their logical order. Falling into the world, we were engulfed in the river of forgetting, Lethe, and its waters washed away all memory of the ideas. We have forgotten them. So we come into the world as beings without ideas, idiots, and we can live out an entire idiotic life in the world, turning in circles, for example, cooking to eat and eating to cook, or sowing to reap and reaping to sow, or working to rest and resting to work, fundamentally, living to die and dying to be reborn in our children. This self-motivated idiotic life follows the order of a kitchen oikonomia, and Plato also calls it zoon oikonomikon, the economic life, in the sense that Wirtschaft, economy, in German means a restaurant. Yet there are methods we can use to remember the ideas, for example, the idea of a jug, the jugness we beheld in heaven. And should we do this, we can impress this idea on a phenomenon, for example, on formless clay, to bring the phenomenal world into accord with the ideal world. The result, an earthly jug, will then be our work. And as soon as the jug has been made, we can set it outside the kitchen door, publicize it, politicize it, to exchange it for the work of another and thereby establish its value. This working and publicizing life, Plato calls bios politicos, life directed toward the marketplace. But as we look at the jug, we see that the idea of jugness has been distorted by the clay. It is no longer so perfect as it was in heaven, and anyone who believes in such phenomenal ideas will have only distorted ideas, doxi, opinions. Political life is therefore a life of false opinions, orthodoxies, paradoxes, heterodox, in short, errors. We can avoid this error only by comparing the jug with jugness. By criticizing it. This requires us to turn our attention to jugness and all other heavenly ideas, Theoria. Meanwhile, we are standing in the middle of the marketplace with works all around us, gazing upward. Plato calls this observing life, back turned to phenomena, bios philosophicos, life in the love of wisdom. In utopia, these three forms of life: economy, politics, and philosophy form a stepladder. The economy supports politics because without economic support, a craftsman would not have the leisure to make a jug. Politics supports philosophy because without the marketplace and the work set out there, a philosopher could not compare, criticize, and steer the establishment of values. Idiots, slaves, the economy, Our society's base, its middle ground are artists and publicists, politics and theorists, those who steer philosophy, are the kings. The purpose of the republic, politia, is to open a space for philosophy, for remembering and unforgetting ideas, aletheia equals unforget, truth, and so to return to our heavenly home. The key word in the social model is leisure, Greek, school, Latin, odium, and its opposite, business, Greek, heskolia, Latin, negotium. Slaves of the economic life are always occupied, busy, economically engaged, even when they are sleeping, for they are then preparing themselves for business to come. Artists of the political life enjoy leisure, have a break, criticize their works, reflect on ideas, when they have completed a work. They go to school periodically. Theoreticians of the philosophical life live in leisure, in school. The purpose of the republic is to permit an elite to live in school to make a return to a heavenly home available to all. This utopian social model was the ideal of feudalism. There the peasants lived in the economy, the townsmen in the workshop, and the monks in school to open the way for a return to heaven. With the bourgeois revolution of the 15th century, the workshop set itself above the school, and theories needed to serve the needs of manufacture. Bourgeois society no longer sought wisdom at leisure but rather to change the world through progress. With the industrial revolution of the 19th century, the economy set itself above the workshop. Industrial society no longer sought world change but rather ever-increasing consumption, occupation business. Slaves, apparently freed, became kings, and the way back to heaven closed. I will now try to apply this model to the present essay. In it to prepare, I describe the telematic society as a school in which everyone lives all the time. In it to govern, I describe the telematic society as one governed automatically, in which it is meaningless to speak of politics. Have I then already taken the telematic society to be a realization of a platonic utopia, that is, as a society in which slaves, economy, are robots, artists, politics, are automatic intelligences, in which everyone lives for theory, all are philosophers, kings, nourished and supplied with criticizable models by robots and artificial intelligences. Is cybernetic society a structure in which everyone lives at leisure and where all work, economy, and all effects, politics, become subhuman? Basically, is a situation in which everyone contemplates images, whether it be to receive, to change, or to forward them on, and in which the cycle of the economy and the process of production takes place behind people's backs, the very situation that Plato called life in the love of wisdom. The answer to this is regrettably sobering. For as long as human mammals depend on the brains and fingertips of future telematic people, i.e., in the foreseeable future, it will remain impossible to ignore the economy, to philosophize, to have leisure, to live in school. And this is not primarily because mammals must be nourished and reproduced, this task could in fact be taken over by automata, but primarily because mammals suffer and die. And this shows what the economy is about and what we are sometimes in danger of forgetting, about suffering and about death. An economy is accordingly not so much a method of preserving and reproducing human bodies but of ameliorating their suffering, that which Buddhism calls their thirst and postponing their death. Economics and medicine are fundamentally synonyms. I won't speak here of death. For this whole essay, which appears to be about the emerging universe of technical images, is, in fact, an effort to become immortal through images. Memory, the opposite of death, is the theme, and the motive, of this effort, i.e., of this essay as well as of telematics. But death and dying are not the same. Dying means to suffer death. So, in keeping with the reflections introduced earlier, dying belongs in the realm of the economic. Without doing violence to Plato, the matter can be formulated as follows the economics is the field of dying, politics the field of not wanting to die, and philosophy the field of immortality. And this means that in this chapter on the future economy, I am not obliged to speak of death, that I can restrict myself to speaking of suffering. For dying is contained in the nature of suffering, whatever I suffer from, even if it be a toothache, I have a foretaste of dying, and one can assume that in dying, all suffering is concentrated on death, that it only then deserves to be called suffering. The economy is a method of providing bodies with the means of not suffering, dying. Consider, for example, food. In places where the economy functions poorly, for example, in the third world, people suffer. It is incidentally becoming increasingly clear that the economy is a medical problem and medicine an economic one. To gain insight into this, It is enough to see the distended bellies of third-world children who are the victims of drought. Because the human body is a solid, the economic and medical means, essential such as meat or aspirin, are bodies as well. They are objects informed with the purpose of ameliorating suffering. Robots can inform objects, work, as well as deliver informed objects to human bodies. distribution robots can act and exchange. In this sense, human beings will be shut out of the economy, production as well as distribution of goods will be done automatically, behind the backs of people watching images, in the machinery of the telematic and colony. The reproduction of bodies, too, is an economic issue. It, too, serves to defer dying of the species, not the individual body and because it likewise involves bodies, it, too, can be done by robots. Behind the backs of people watching images, robots can take sperm and egg to incubate new watches of images. Only then will the libido be capable of true celebration. So even in this aspect of physiology, of the economy, human beings will become superfluous. But robots cannot do our suffering for us. And this is not, as one might think, because there are no methods of turning away from suffering. One need only think back to the Stoics and Epicurus to see such methods. Only such methods cannot be integrated, or only very indirectly, with the process of automation. For in the end, they all rest on the possibility of suicide to avoid pain. If we take Schopenhauer, of whom I intend to speak further, to assist as a witness, we would recognize suffering and living as synonyms. As long as we have bodies, suffering, and with it, the economy, will form the base of society. And this is not for physiological but for existential reasons. For pain can be relieved, suffering can be numbed. But as soon as the body is anesthetized, consciousness becomes quiet and numb anesthetic. Consciousness, to be consciousness at all, is an unhappy consciousness. If all pain were relieved, all suffering numbed, the economy would be superseded. We could turn our backs to it and practice philosophy. But then there would be nothing left over which to philosophize. The platonic social model, applied to telematics, shows that the platonic utopia, in fact, Any utopia hides an internal contradiction, there can be no happiness without suffering. Utopia is impossible. So the economy will continue to form the base of the society of technical images, but it will have changed so completely from the present one that our current models, whether they be liberal or Marxist or whatever, will miss the mark. For a telematic economy will not be about coveted goods but about necessary evil. Economic activity will no longer be regarded as a way of life but as an interruption of learning. Such contempt and fear of things economic may be reminiscent of Platonic aristocracy, of aristocracy in general, and, in fact, all human beings will be aristocrats in relation to the working robots. And yet, categories other than the Platonic and aristocratic in general will be needed to grasp the economic base. I would like to focus on two categories, namely, perception, the seat of suffering in the brain, and the unique category, sympathy. The greatest scandal of the present day is medicine. It is scandalous not because it functions scandalously, see the third world, but because it rests on scandalous assumptions. Above all is the assumption that the living body is property and that it ought to be kept alive. In the near future, It will probably become incomprehensible that such a scandal could have been tolerated. Of course, the explanation is simple. If cultural objects are regarded as property to be used, then the living body is the greatest property of all, the focus of all others. Medicine today is nothing but the central point of today's economy. But the moment this interest shifts from cultural objects to pure information, to technical images, contemporary medicine will be revealed as a crime against human dignity. As long as some bit of brain remains in the living body, something that cannot be made completely robotic, the body continues to be a necessary evil. The body should disturb play, living, as little as possible, be a spoil sport as little as possible. And when this is no longer possible, When the body puts defects into play that cannot be repaired, medicine has the task of removing it with as little intrusion as possible. Medicine should be the means of alleviating suffering when it does so to delay death and where the suffering cannot be alleviated to remove the body. In a dialogically ordered society, death could no longer be distinguished from suicide, the decision to put a suffering body down, euthanasia, would be made in dialogue, example, between a doctor and the one who is suffering. I chose the example of medicine not only because it is so striking but above all because it emphasizes the cerebral nature of suffering. As long as corporeal processes, or economic processes of any sort, do not enter into consciousness, as long as they proceed automatically, they can and should be ignored. To become interested in one's own liver function, or in one's morning toast, is to miss a chance to produce pictures. Should there be a programming error, the liver is forcing itself into consciousness by being painful or the burned toast by tasting terrible, one would feel obliged to reprogram, in cooperation with others. And when it becomes clear that such reprogramming is getting on people's nerves, especially those nerves engaged in making pictures, there is an option to say no, to exercise one's veto option and forget everything, die. For one will not be forgotten, artificial memories see to it that what was once called the egg is stored so that it can be dialogically changed. So that is the economy, an evil that is necessary in order not to be forgotten. It is, nonetheless, an evil that can be forgotten by the one who decides to say no. The only one who can afford to despise the economy is the one who exercises the freedom of the veto. Unfortunately, one must take an interest in the economy, including one's own body, when programs are faulty, when one becomes aware of suffering. This awareness is, however, dialogically ordered. When one of the knots in the net, a single eye, becomes aware of suffering, the entire net becomes sympathetic. If the economy has to become interesting, if it has to manifest the impossibility of reducing it to a robotic substructure, this will be as a result of sympathy. Telematic society will be concerned with poorly programmed bodies, livers, loaves, out of sympathy to reprogram them and finally to be able to ignore them. All consciousness is an unhappy consciousness, even that emerging awareness of a visionary power that is about to give rise to the universe of technical images. The source of all creativity is suffering. In pre-telematic times, this suffering was primarily something individual, private. An entire literature is devoted to this creative suffering. In a telematic situation, the source of creativity is sympathy. One could call it love, if one so desired. But a better way might be to perceive others' suffering and dying by recognizing one's own suffering and dying. So the following watch phrase might be set over the telematic society I am mortal, you are mortal, we are mortal. This would be an approximate formulation of telematics's negatively entropic project. In summary, something like the following can be predicted about the economic infrastructure of the coming society, action and trade will be largely automated and will not be interesting. The objects produced and consumed they will not impinge on a consciousness absorbed in images. People will neither work nor make works, and in this sense, society will approach a platonic utopia. All will become kings, all will live in school, leisure, and will become philosophers. And yet occasionally, something will malfunction. Accidents will happen. People will suffer, and die. These accidents will impinge on consciousness and will be interesting. Because there must be such accidents, predictable, unsurprising, redundant, every effort will be made to keep them at a minimum. Better and better methods will probably have been worked out, suffering will occur more rarely and death later. But even the increasing rarity can be calculated. When repairs become too expensive, when they disturb life in school, when they spoil the pleasure of the game, the disturbance will be forgotten. This, I think, is how all dying will be in the future, a dialogically negotiated agreement to forget. Economic sciences will be grouped together as those disciplines that quantify values. I hope that these prophetic reflections will provoke discussion of the coming reordering of all values. In any case, that was, I confess, their real intention. Chapter 19 To Celebrate In the platonic model I discussed briefly in the previous chapter, a high priority is placed on leisure, school. It is the goal of life, the seat of wisdom. And it looks as though we are approaching this goal with seven-mile boots. Unemployment is spreading, and automata are taking over those gestures instituted by human beings to change the environment. The division of labor is gradually becoming a question asked by robots of programmers, less a political than a mathematical question. The matter of leisure, so readily dismissed today with the notion of managing free time, therefore presents an ever more urgent question. If the previous chapter has been remotely successful in its estimate of the coming telematic society, there can be no doubt that the question of leisure must stand at the centre of this entire essay. It is not only about quantities, not only about how more and more free time ought to be apportioned. In fact, the time between shifts for the politically conscious craftsman has turned into the holidays, leave, and pensions of the economically conscious industrial worker, and again into the cybernetic life of the information-consuming functionary, only periodically interrupted by work. Quantitatively, then, the relationship between work and leisure has reversed itself so that instead of holidays, one ought to speak of service days. In the telematic society, free time is all there is to be discussed. Nevertheless, it is not so much the division of leisure time into hours, days, or years that is at stake but the experience of leisure, of enjoyment. Telematic society should live pleasurably, should exploit its own imaginative capacities. We can better approach enjoyment by temporarily forgetting the Platonic concept of leisure as the seat of wisdom, the theoretical life, and turn our attention to the other root of our culture, namely, Judaism. There we encounter the Sabbath. It is holy, the only thing that is, in fact, apart from God Himself, the commandment says, Thou shalt observe the Sabbath, to keep it holy. This is, however, a holiness Plato would not have understood. For him, as for our entire Greek tradition, holiness is detached and protected from the space of the polis. It is a terminos, a temple, a place of observation, leisure, a school, in fact. It is a refuge under the protection of a god, such as the god Akademos, where one goes to exchange ideas with other leisured beings. The Sabbath by contrast, is a space held above and apart from the flow of events, a temple not of marble but of time, and it is therefore only holy when someone separates it from history, when someone celebrates it. By lifting the Sabbath out of linear time, out of the week, history is interrupted. The six days of the week then flow into the Sabbath, where they are lifted. History happens during the six days of the week, God creates the world, so as not to do anything on the Sabbath, nothing happens, God rests. The six days of the week pursue a goal, they are motivated, they intend something. Their goal, their motive, their intention, the goal, motive, intention of any history whatsoever, is the Sabbath. The Sabbath itself, meanwhile, stands still, it has no goal, no motive, no intention, for it is itself the goal, the motive. The six days of the week are meaningful, and their meaning is the Sabbath. The Sabbath itself, by contrast, is meaningless exactly because it is itself the meaning. The six days of the week are valuable, and their value is the Sabbath. The Sabbath itself, on the other hand, has no value because it is itself the value. This is why the Sabbath, if it is kept, is holy. It transcends history. A Kabbalistic interpretation of messianic time reads that it is that time when two Sabbaths follow one another with nothing in between. And for Christianity, it is the holy moment of the Sabbath between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Here history is suspended. It is the joyous moment of redemption from suffering. Not that the Judeo-Christian concept of joy, of holiness, is opposed to the Greek concept of theory, contemplation, philosophy. Both stand for a transcending of history, for post-history. In both cases, the academy and the celebration of Sabbath, one turns one's back to the economy and rises to that which was called, in Faust, the mothers, one still there is a crucial difference between an academic and a celebratory life. For in the academy, one looks, one sees ideas there, and in celebration, one listens, one is called. The academy is a segment of space. There one sees forms. The Sabbath celebration is a segment of time, and there one gains a calling. This is why Greek leisure is contemplation, and the joyous leisure of Judeo-Christianity is responsibility, response to a call. Greek leisure is essential, where essences are to be seen. Joyous leisure is by contrast existential, where something categorically other is to be encountered. In Greek leisure, one discovers the holy, Alethea equals discovery, truth. In celebratory leisure, the holy makes itself manifest, has its say. Only when leisure and celebration meet, when the academy blends with the Sabbath, when space and time are mutually suspended, could it be said that the Western tradition has reached completion. This is the religious aspect of telematics. Since the bourgeois revolution of the fifteenth century, we have forgotten how to celebrate. In history books, this forgetting is usually referred to as of modern life becoming profane. According to the platonic model sketched in the previous chapter, theory was subordinated to practice from the time of the bourgeois revolution, or from this point, theoretical leisure served the interest of progressive world change. From the Judeo-Christian standpoint, the bourgeois revolution repressed celebration in the interest of utility. The leisure of holidays would henceforth serve as a time of recovery for the useful activity that would follow, academy and Sabbath would be subordinated to work, to technology, to the working day. The industrial revolution of the 19th century completed the secularization of the school and celebration. Theory itself became a technology, an enterprise involving institutions built and financed expressly for this purpose. Celebration became a weekend, a summer vacation, or a ski trip organized by institutions specializing in such things. In this way, the bourgeois revolution integrated leisure, both in its Greek and in its Judeo-Christian senses, into labor, and the Industrial Revolution in its turn built this leisure-fed labor into the industrial economy. In an odd way, the automation revolution we are now experiencing exposes this integration of leisure into labor and the following integration of labor into the economy. For it shows that a degraded and secularized leisure is swelling up inside labor and that as labor is digested by the economy, the whole industrial economy blows up like a soap bubble. This is why the current problem of leisure activity, unemployment, And free time is first and foremost an economic problem. It puts industry and industriousness into question. From the standpoint of industry, the problem of increasing leisure presents a political problem. For thanks to automation, leisure is no longer the root of all evil but, on the contrary, the reward for all virtue. A leisure that gains the upper hand represents the antithesis of business and, Furthermore, the antithesis of bourgeois values. But both the economic and the political view of work displaced by leisure deflect attention from the actual problem that we don't know how to be idle, we don't know how to celebrate. Our incapacity to celebrate can be observed in the way we use the word idle. We use it in passing, with a dismissive gesture, for example, when we say it's idle to speculate about something. Idle clearly means pointless. But the ancient Greeks knew that pointless is a synonym for pure. They knew that philosophy depends on idle speculation about something. And the ancient Jews kept the Sabbath holy expressly to keep it distinct from the working day, to be able to speculate idly about holy texts for that length of time. For both these pre-bourgeois traditions, idol is an expression for the human capacity to rise above the purposeful. It is a celebratory expression. And unless we can remember the meaning of the word, we will remain incapable of recognizing unemployment as a blessing. One way of remembering is to observe the difference between human and animal gestures. Human beings do make purposeful, economic, gestures, like any other animal, they reach for things to eat and things with which to copulate, and they hold dangerous things at bay. But purposeless, useless, anti-economic, celebratory gestures may be observed as well. Children play with inedible, infertile, harmless pebbles, for example, they play theoretically. It says something about our obliviousness of the sacred status of leisure that we interpret such games as utilitarian and say, for example, that a useful object such as a stone knife, a culture of use, arose from such a pebble game. In this way, we lose sight of the cultural centrality of uselessness and leisure, the festive and theoretical, that is to say, art and theoretical science. A phenomenology of human gestures can remind us that humans are festive beings, religious in the Judeo-Christian sense. This is basically the message of the religious tradition, to remind us of the purposelessness, the festivity of human life. But we have become deaf to this message, unless, perhaps, it comes to us through the filter of a more accessible discourse, for example, through Kierkegaard. His work goes to some length to show the power of a religious life, a life before God, without purpose, over ethical life, a purposeful life in politics and commerce. One of the basic themes of this essay is that we now have a new and unexpected method of regaining Kierkegaard's insight into religious life. That is telematics, which permits us to recognize ourselves in others through images festively, leisurely, Without purpose. It therefore seems completely wrong of me to wonder to what purpose people will make images in the future. Such a question is typical of pre telematic, historical, purpose bound thinking. If my predictions are accurate, the state of mind of people of the future will be precisely the relaxation of making images, beyond any what for, in the absence of motive. They will live without problems. No longer butting up against objects and obstacles, but in pure education, at leisure. Everything they do will be relaxed, they will live in celebration. One giant Sabbath will engulf future humanity. And if that seems endlessly boring, it is because we, despite all our festivals, or perhaps exactly because of them, have forgotten what celebrate means. In the chapter to play, I was trying to say the same thing. There, however, I approached the matter from the profane side. Playing and celebrating are in fact related concepts. This can be seen, as I said, in the celebratory gestures of children as they play, except that games can be won or lost, and in celebrating, there is nothing to win. In contrast to all other societies, the telematic society will produce no winnings from its play. New information will be generated continually, the sum of available information will continually grow larger, but this flow of information will not become useful, will not become profit. It will only be celebrated. In the religious atmosphere of this chapter, the question of programming can be asked afresh. What do I actually mean when I say of telematics that it permits a dialogical programming of image-producing apparatuses? For one thing, I certainly mean that there will be no centralized senders but that each image maker, sitting before his terminal, will be able to program his own apparatus. I mean that all these individual programs will be measured against one another, enriching and correcting one another, and that there will be an ongoing dialogical programming of all apparatuses by all participants, that people of the future will be distinguishable from the functionaries of today in that unlike functionaries, they will program rather than be programmed. But by dialogical programming, I mean, in consideration of celebration and festivity, something far more basic. I mean roughly that which Buber called dialogic life. In the concept of self programming under discussion here, the stress lies on self. It is my program and no one else's. I want to have my program so that I won't be subject to anyone else's. I want to possess, not to be possessed. Elsewhere, this essay was concerned with ownership and possession as categories that would no longer apply to the information society. In this context, the concept of self-programming would have no meaning. Yet this contradicts the experience we currently have of the emerging society. We experience it as an imperialism of information. Senders possess the programs, and we are possessed by them. To make a program telematic would therefore be to extract it from the possession of the sender to make it the possession of all participants. In the current state of affairs, therefore, Self-programming might rather mean, dispossession, the socialization of imperialistic programs. It is a socializing term. Once the telematic society really arrives, however, the concept self-program won't be able to sustain this meaning. Once the centralized senders are gone, dispossession will no longer be relevant. Only dialogical programming will be relevant then there will be no point in having one's own program so that it cannot be displaced by another's. On the contrary, the point will be to have other programs, programs of others, to be able to change them, to suggest them to others. So when there really is a telematic society, rather than our own programs, we will be discussing alternative programs, a neologism that strikes me as characteristic of telematic society. These considerations bring us to the paired concepts of my own and another's, concepts that carry a heavy load. To try to unburden it, as Heidegger did in Identity and Difference and as the debate between Sartre and Foucault tried to do, is to recognize the reversibility of the terms. One's own is what is not another's. To identify A equals A is to define difference in relation to another A equals A. Understanding this, not only logically but existentially, breaks open the shell that encapsulates me, what is uniquely mine, what I possess, leaving an open view of what is absolutely other. I then become something that is the other of the absolute other. Judaism forbade the making of images, and Christianity and Islam, each in its own way, have followed the same path. This is because images made by human beings obscure the true image. The true image is any human face. It is the image of the absolute other, the likeness of God. Each human being is, for me, the likeness of God, and I am the likeness of God for all others. Therefore, each human being is the other for me, and I am the other for all human beings, an image of the absolute other. God. Because each person is for me the true image of the absolute other, he is the only image, the only way I can or should conceive of God. All other images I make of God or anything else are false images and so forbidden. Every single person is my only medium to God, and I can only come to God if I go to Him through the other, each other one. All other media, all other images, representations and ideas, are false media. They are idolatrous. The only true love of God is love of another, human love. So, thou shalt love thy God, the Absolute Other, with all thy heart, and all thy soul, and everything that thou hast is synonymous with love thy neighbour, another. All pre-telematic images, from lost to video, are discursive, broadcast images, projected against the other, obscuring his face. They are forbidden. They lead the wrong way, away from God. Telematic, dialogically synthesized images, on the other hand, are media between one human being and another, through which I may see the face of the other. And through this face I may see God. Dialogical programming of images, the dialogical life, Can therefore be a celebration of God, of the Absolute Other, each one with all others and by means of all others, a prayer. That is basically what I meant by alternative programs. We may be at the point of remembering how to celebrate. We may be at the point of finding our way back, on a strange detour through telematics, to being genuinely human, that is, to a festive existence for another to purposeless play with others and for others. Even now, we are beginning to be repulsed by pretelematic existence, an existence bound up with purpose and motives, always harping away at what is one's own, as a frightfully serious, joyless, and so profane way of life. A new, completely unorthodox religiosity is beginning to emerge from the musty corners of our consciousness, and this, surprisingly, in the form of the dreamlike universe of technical images. Chapter 20 Chamber Music The titles of all previous chapters are verbs, in fact, infinitives, calling attention to the way these thoughts push outward, never reaching the horizon. The title of this penultimate chapter is a substantive, to express the hope that the thoughts have arrived at something substantial. This tension between the unbounded quality of the infinitive and the definability of the substantive characterizes not only this essay but any kind of forecasting. Forecasting is not a matter of seeing what's coming. A forecaster looks in the direction in which the present seems to be pointing, at how things will come out, not at what is coming. One can predict outcomes but not what is to come. A forecaster covers up the future with outcomes so that there is no future. He anticipates the future with information to avert the future. The Heideggerian concept of a precaution expresses it. To take a precaution is not only to concern oneself with a particular possibility but also to provide for this possibility, to draw it into the present, anticipate it to do away with it. All prediction damages the future. This can be observed on computer screens. Developments, tendencies, curves can be projected from the present forward, and these projections can be manipulated. Margins of error can be calculated as closely as one likes. But such projections show the results of calculations, not what is coming. There is no future. Computerized prediction devours the future in the interest of avoiding catastrophe. But catastrophes cannot be avoided because they cannot be foreseen. Whatever I may foresee is by definition not a catastrophe. I can project scenarios to undermine my expectations for a telematic society, a nuclear war, for example, or a third world revolt, or, more interestingly, the decay of a system as complex and vulnerable as a dialogically ordered society would have to be. I can project a scenario in which the repressed physicality of the telematic society would reassert itself against the tendency to become more and more cerebral, producing an unprecedented level of bestiality. But such scenarios do not describe catastrophes, they describe things that are predictable and that therefore can, at least theoretically, be avoided. True catastrophes cannot be foreseen. There are emergencies. For example, if I am throwing stones at a window pane with increasing force, I can calculate the change in the angle of reflection each stone makes as it falls back from the window, order them into a curve, and project this curve. I will reach the point at which the window breaks. That is a true catastrophe, for I cannot extend my curve to predict the trajectory of the stone on the other side of the window. To do this, I would have to have information that is not available on this side of the window. True catastrophes are new information. They are, by definition, surprising adventures. In this essay, I have proposed that human engagement consists in bringing about surprising adventures, Catastrophes, and that telematics realizes this engagement theoretically and technically. Telematic society is then a structure for realizing catastrophes. Therefore, any attempt to predict it, as I have done here, is contradictory and self-referential—uroboros, the snake that swallows its own tail. There is also another reason that what I tried to do here was impossible. I took certain contemporary tendencies as my starting points, for example, the tendency of technical images to become more and more immediate and to repress texts or the tendency of images to become electronic or the tendency of apparatuses to become smaller and cheaper and to penetrate into the smaller spaces. I did not invent these tendencies, I discovered them but an infinity of tendencies stream from every phenomenon, surrounding it with a cloud of futures. That is exactly what makes a phenomenon concrete, that it is a core surrounded by innumerable possibilities. I selected several of these possibilities and neglected all the others, using probability as my criterion, the neglected possibilities seemed improbable. But this criterion contradicts everything this essay has tried to say, That we are interested in precisely what is improbable. And so to the extent this essay predicts anything, it contradicts its own premises. And yet both are impossible, to predict and not to predict. This is one of the contradictions that characterizes human existence, and what I've tried to say here acknowledges this contradiction. In other words, telematic society, as I foresee it here, is not what is approaching but what we worry about because it is emerging from us. This is not the music of the future but rather a critique of the present. The scenario, the fable, I propose here is this—people will sit in separate cells, playing with their fingertips on keyboards, staring at tiny screens, receiving, changing, and sending images. Behind their backs, robots will bring them things to maintain and reproduce their derelict bodies. People will be in contact with one another through their fingertips and so form a dialogical net, a global superbrain, whose function will be to calculate and compute improbable situations into pictures, to bring information, catastrophes about. Artificial intelligences will also be in dialogue with human beings, connected through cables and similar nerve strands. In terms of function, then, it will be meaningless to try to distinguish between natural and artificial intelligences, between primate brains and secondary brains. The whole thing will function as a cybernetically controlled system that cannot be divided into constituent elements, a black box. The prevailing state of mind will be reminiscent of the one we experience in our creative moments, the experience of being out of oneself of adventure, of orgasm. The telematic superbrain will radiate an ever-expanding, self-renewing, and self-concentrating aura of technical images. It will present a universal spectacle, although a modest rather than a grand one. For the emissions of the superbrain will not be directed outward into the void but inward, toward endless tiny terminals. It will be a mosaic spectacle a game with tiny pieces. The superbrain will play internally, it will dream, a universal spectacle as a montage game of tiny parts, a black box composed entirely of darkened rooms, a universal orchestra made up entirely of chamber musicians. This brings us to a closer examination of chamber music, not the sort one hears in concern holds, but the sort experienced by those who meet to make music. I imagine these musicians meeting not to read scores but to improvise from available scores, as was common in the Renaissance. A recording of the music will become the basis for further improvisation by future musicians. This is to suggest chamber music as a model for dialogic communication in general, and for telematic communication in particular. The basis for such music making is an original score, a program, a set of rules. But using recordings of recordings of recordings, this score will soon disappear behind the horizon of musicians who are improvising with continually reprogrammed memories. In chamber music, there is no director, no government. The one who sets the tempo is only temporarily directing things. And yet chamber music demands an exceptionally close adherence to rules. It is cybernetic. Chamber music is pure play, by and for the players, for whom listeners are superfluous and intrusive. It employs participation, strategy, rather than observation, theory. Precisely to play as though it were playing solo, each instrument plays as though it were an accompaniment. To play for himself, each player plays for all the others. Each improvises together with all the others, which is to say, Each adheres to precise rules, consensus, to jointly change them in the course of the playing. Each player is both a sender and a receiver of information. His goal is to synthesize new information to become more than the playing. This information is pure, with no tangible substrate, except, of course, for the recording device. But this recording device is nothing like the work of chamber music. result of the work, rather it serves as its memory, which is durable and can be randomly replayed. It is futile to look for the meaning of the information that emerges in this way anywhere but in the game itself, in the players and the rules they follow. In short, chamber music can serve as a model of telematic social structure. In itself, it precedes telematics, the apparatus, and automation. It is a pre-industrial form of communication. And yet it is now possible to see in it, and perhaps in jazz, so strongly reminiscent of chamber music, many aspects of post-industrial communication, above all the camera obscura aspect. This may, incidentally, explain the otherwise remarkable contemporary interest in chamber music and jazz we recognize in it the form of a future society. And yet there are divergences as well as parallels between the structure of chamber music and that of the emerging telematic society. Whereas classical scores have blank spots that challenge players to improvise, programs are in themselves challenges to improvise. In this sense, many modern scores should be called programs. So what the recording device is for chamber music, artificial memories are for telematics, although in contrast to the recorder, the intelligences participate actively in the dialogue so that in them, past, present, and future converge. The essential difference between chamber music and telematics is therefore as follows, chamber music takes place in linear time, develops themes, and one improvisation follows another. Telematics, on the other hand, occurs in a simultaneous time and space, and all players in all places make decisions relating to themes and their variations all at once. That is the difference between pressing on a piano key and on the key of the apparatus. Despite this difference, the comparison between chamber music and telematics occurred to me long ago, long before I began to write this essay. Had I proposed this comparison at an earlier point in my thinking, I would have made it easier to gain an insight into telematics. Unfortunately, I felt forced to defer the model until now because it comes from the world of music. As the reader will surely have realized with surprise and annoyance, I have excluded everything to do with ear and mouth, with sound and words, from my thinking. I have omitted the audiovisual character of the universe of technical images for I am convinced that only now has the moment come to speak about this. My conviction about this is one of the motivations for this work. The universe of music is, according to Schopenhauer, the world as well. It doesn't represent anything. Schopenhauer sets this universe in contrast to the world as representation, the universe of technical images. The universe of music is not grounded in anyone's imagination but in some sort of biological drive. Musical information does not depend on the receiver's ability to decode it, such as an ear linked to a brain, rather it permeates the receiver's body with vibrations, which bring this body into resonance, sympathy. The universe of technical images, on the other hand, emerges from the imagination, from a kind of intellect it presents something and wants to be deciphered. And so the universe of technical images, the world as representation, sets itself before the universe of music, before the world as will, and covers it like a veil. In other words, the world of music is concrete life, will and suffering, and the world of images is abstract conjuring, maya. I will now argue against Schopenhauer. The world of music is a composed universe. Compose and compute are synonyms. We don't need to wait for electronic music to recognize this quality about music, the universe of music is as calculated and computed as that of technical images. It is true that technical images are calculated and computed representations and belong in this sense to Schopenhauer's world as representation. But as I tried to show in the suggested model, the universe of technical images is reminiscent of many things about the musical universe. In contrast to the musical one, it is a universe of surfaces, but like the musical one, it is a pure universe, free of any semantic dimension. Technical images are pure art in the same sense that music alone once was. And so one can say that with the rise of technical images, A new level of consciousness is reached, namely, one that makes music with visionary power. This, I think, is the only way the audiovisual character of the universe of technical images can be understood. Since the beginning of computing, technical images have rushed spontaneously to sound, and from sound spontaneously to images, binding them. To look at it another way, All pre technical images and all pre technical music could be understood as aspiring to technical sounding images, making the technical image the first instance of music becoming an image and an image becoming music. There are, in fact, contemporary devices that automatically translate image into sound and sound into images, electronic mixes, but this is exactly what is not meant here. In a sounding image, the image does not mix with music, rather, both are raised to a new level, the audiovisual, which could not realize its meaning until now because of its grounding in earlier levels. Contemporary approaches to making music pictorial and pictures musical have had a long preparation. They can be seen, for example, in so called abstract painting and in the scores of newer musical compositions. But only synthesized images are really conceived musically and made musical with visualizing power. It will become pointless to try to distinguish between music and so-called visual arts because everyone will be a composer, will make images. The universe of technical images can be seen as a universe of musical vision. This essay is an argument in support of this proposition. Once they have both become electronic, visual and acoustic technologies will no longer be separable. It is almost sad to watch an inherited division between visual and sound arts prevent so-called computer artists from letting the images be audible. This cannot be compared to the resistance film producers showed toward sound film after the First World War, however. At that point, There was still a real technical boundary between image and music, between the world as representation and the world as will. Today this boundary exists only in the thinking of producers working with obsolete categories. On the basis not only of its structure, but also of its technology, so-called computer art is moving toward sounding images and visible sound. And this is the case not only in computer art but in all synthetic images and compositions, even those that present themselves as scientific or political documents rather than as art. Visionary power and music can no longer be separated. The emerging universe of technical images as both world as representation and world as will, this formulation of Schopenhauer's, permits very different interpretations, for example, A Nietzschean one, in technical images, the will to power appears in the form of eternal repetition, and in this way, representations become concrete. That is a seductive reading. For the will to power can be interpreted as a negatively entropic disposition, and eternal return of the same as reproducibility, and finally, the superman as cybernetic superbrain. I believe, however, that the current tendency to read Nietzsche as a prophet should be taken with a grain of salt, for otherwise, there is a risk of losing one's grasp of what is new in current developments. I think this new aspect can be grasped at its tip in the dreamlike quality of the emerging image world. It is a dream world in which the dreamers seem exceptionally alert, however, for to press the buttons that produce pictures, the dreamer needs to calculate and compute clear and distinct concepts. It is a dream world, then, that does not lie below waking consciousness but above it, conscious and consciously constructed, a hyperconscious dream world. It will therefore be pointless to try to interpret dreams, they will mean nothing beyond themselves, and they will be tangible, a world of pure art, of play for its own sake. Ludus imaginis, play of the image, as Ludus tonelli's, play of sound, and the emerging consciousness of the power to imagine as that of homo ledens, man the playful. What this essay has tried to do is to relate a fable. It narrates a fabulous universe, that of technical images, a fabulous society, that of cybernetic dialogue, a fabulous consciousness that of making music with the power of imagination. It narrates the story with consummate hope and at the same time with fear and trembling. For this fable is a catastrophe about to break out of its shell. And we are that shell. The T.E. Fabala narrator, the story is about you. Summary. These thoughts have followed a twisting path through a thicket of problems. Someone following it may have a feeling of being led about by the nose. It would have been easy to smooth the way, to cut a motorway straight across the thicket of problems, as has been done in the Amazon. But I have some experience with driving, and with the Amazon. Nothing is more boring than a motorway. It is the bends around the problems that make a journey worthwhile. They offer perspectives on the problems. At the end of this work, an overview is nevertheless appropriate. I will therefore survey the ground that has been covered from a helicopter. Let it be noted, in the meantime, that the Alps are photogenic seen from above, but only by climbing can one experience them. This essay consists of 20 chapters, that is, 20 problems have been selected from the countless ones that proliferate as the future of technical images approaches the problems are as follows. 1. To abstract, what are technical images? They differ from all other previous images, and not only because they are made by technical apparatuses, as we mistakenly say. In fact, quite the opposite is true, apparatuses alone may make them because they arise from another level of consciousness, more abstract than that of any previous images. 2. To imagine, from what level of consciousness did earlier pictures arise? From that ancient level at which human beings first step back from their surroundings to observe and to depict, that is to say, from a prehistoric level. 3. To make concrete, and from what level of consciousness do technical images arise? That level at which we emerge when the world around us and even our own consciousness disintegrates into particles that need to be calculated and composed, which is to say, condensed into images, that is, a visionary level of consciousness. For, to touch, but these particles are, after all invisible, incomprehensible, and imperceptible. How can we turn them into images? by means of apparatuses equipped with keys, which begs the question of whether and how these keys control the apparatus and how the keys are and should be set up. 5. To envision, if technical images are actually mosaics and not really surfaces, how can we regard them as pictures? By way of the capacity we are currently gaining of seeing something solid in the most abstract things, particles. This does require us to stop trying to tell real from fictional and concern ourselves with the difference between concrete and abstract. 6. To signify, what do technical images, these calculated and computed mosaics, actually mean? They are models that give form to a world and a consciousness that has disintegrated, they are meant to inform that world. Their vector of signification is therefore the reverse of that of earlier images, they don't receive their meaning from outside but rather project meaning outward. They lend meaning to the absurd. 7. To interact, how do technical images function as models? They function by means of feedback between themselves and their receivers. People pattern their behavior according to the images, and the images pick up on their behavior to function better and better as models. This feedback is a short circuit that threatens to tip us into entropic decline and to exhaust all history. 8. To scatter, what does a society so fully in the thrall of images look like? It is a fascistic society, centrally controlled by senders, in which traditional social structures have fallen apart and human beings constitute an amorphous, Scattered mass the images contribute to this fragmentation nine to instruct how are the images distributed to have such power over society. They are produced in automatic apparatuses and passed automatically through channels to their receivers. within these apparatuses, human beings, functionaries perform some functions, and non-human automata perform others. Functionaries make up the greater part of the society. It is a totalitarianism of the apparatus. 10. To discuss, is it possible to reorganize the images' fascistic, totalitarian circuitry? Yes, telematics could make it possible. It is a technology of dialogue, and if the images circulated dialogically, totalitarianism would give way to a democratic structure. 11. To play, how can we make images dialogically? Dialogue is an exchange of information that generates new information. It is negatively entropic. Telematics is a game strategy with the goal of steering dialogue toward the production of new information, above all images. 12. To create, why should anyone participate in such a dialogue, when the result is not his own work but the work of an anonymous group? People will be drawn in by a desire to play, by the intoxication of creative play. Thirteen, to prepare, so in the future, is anyone potentially a creator? Yes, because telematic dialogue is not only a strategy for producing information but, above all, a school for creativity, a school for freedom. Fourteen, to decide, in such a school, How does one learn to distinguish creativity from imitation, information from redundancy? Telematics offers criteria for such critical distinctions and decisions to favor information. It maintains a critical distance. 15. To govern, what would a society in which everyone was creator and critic look like? it would be a cybernetically controlled net in which the concrete elements would no longer consist of knots single individuals but of threads interpersonal relationships along with this dissolution of the egg f- into the we would come the dissolution of space and time into global simultaneity it would be a society of simultaneous consensual decisions a kind of global brain 16 to shrink how could such a cerebral society cope with bodily human individuals? It can drain interest from bodies of any sort, including human bodies, redirecting interest instead to immaterial technical images, pure information. Such a reversal in the vector of interest would result in a strange freedom, namely, contempt for things and conditions. 17. To suffer, but how can we ignore the human body when we live and die with it? The economy and medicine, the struggle against suffering and the delay of death, can be automated and so disappear from view. If suffering cannot be allayed and death becomes desirable, the death must be decided in general dialogue. It would be decided out of sympathy, for when the I dissolves in the we, suffering becomes sympathy. 18. To celebrate, how can anyone so removed from everything physical, all work and all suffering, all activity and passivity, anyone so focused on pure information, live, and would such a life be worthy of the name? This is actually the first life that deserves to be called human. By comparison to it, all previous forms of life are merely pre-human approximations. Such a life of contemplation of self-made images would be a life of leisure, a celebratory life with others, for others, and in the presence of the absolutely other. 19. Chamber music, what kind of life would such a celebratory one be? It would be like a consciously self-produced dream, a consciously envisioned life, an artificial life in art, life as play with pictures and sounds, a fabulous life that means the whole essay ends in a fable, albeit one that has now become technically feasible. 20. Summary, can there be an overview of a fable? There can be, but it would render the tale banal and unbelievable. The informative and believable things about it are embedded in the discussion of the 19 problems listed previously, problems that are current. Translators Afterward and Acknowledgements. By Nancy and Roth. Early in this text, Flusser figures the emerging universe of technical images as a submarine breaking through ice, a powerful ship shattering a firm, continuous surface into pieces as it rises into view. Built up over centuries of engagement with alphanumeric code, with writing, the ice that is historical consciousness, that seems so sturdy, has in fact become vulnerable. The shattering break appears in Flusser's text in verbal images such as the ship but also more slowly, more subjectively or essayistically, as a shattering of words. For the figurative ice is made of language, a structure of sound expanded, honed, solidified through its long struggle with, or better, against writing. And the fault lines, where the ice yields to the force of the rising ship, where particular signs split and proliferate to carry Flusser's thought, vary from language to language. Perhaps the best example is the word to imagine, with its rich resonances in imagination, imaginary, imaginative, and image itself. In English, to imagine projects a tentative unity amid diversity an uneasy truce between an admirable inventiveness and a troubling tendency to embroider, or misapprehend, reality. It implies but doesn't necessarily insist on a visually organized expression. Flusser employs the German verbs imaginieren, vorstellen, and einbilden. Any of which might justifiably be translated as to imagine, to describe a new imagination, one or perhaps more accurately, to refer to a capacity to communicate visually for which no one word suffices at this point. The rising force of technical images breaks imagining into at least two, that is, into a before and an after, into an imagination that can read the world and one that sees it only as illegible whirling particles. Those who can read the world can picture it, those who cannot must envision it, confer a meaning, and rely on apparatuses and keys to do so. Those who picture imagine in one way, those who envision in quite another. The ice has cracked. It is just one very modest and yet perhaps sobering example of Flusser's reading of our present situation, his sense of vast change registered in particular words, his sense of such words losing their hold on consciousness, their power to constitute reality, yielding to a very different kind of imagination. I'd like to extend my warm thanks to Andreas Malapoho, who began to shape this book even before it was written, went on to be its first publisher, and continues to care for it through his support of this English edition. I will not forget Finger's instant enthusiasm when I first told her I wanted to translate Flusser's work into English and I have been grateful for her steady support ever since. Andreas Stroll kindly took the time to read and comment most helpfully on an early draft translation, as did Mark America. Lambert Wiesing, a philosopher with a high professional regard and an infectious enthusiasm for Flusser's work, provided most welcome encouragement and timely advice about an English translation. Marcel Marburger generously shared both his knowledge of pertinent materials in the Flusser archive in Berlin and my concern about English equivalents for a few crucial words with unique resonances in German. For all of us, Edith Flusser continues to be an inspiration, a person of enormous warmth and energy, always eager to engage with people and projects that might spark fresh, creative dialogue about her husband's work. I'd like to thank Doug Armotto, Adam Brunner, and Danielle Kasparzak at the University of Minnesota Press for their kindness to me and their commitment to making more of Flusser's work available in English. Finally, it is most fortunate that my husband, Michael Wetman, is an artist who reads voraciously and likes to talk about words. Beyond this, however, He is essential to creating an immediate reality in which I am able to translate books.